Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. For the last time for a while, Revelation chapter 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was a tree of life which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there, they need no lamp, nor light of the sun, but the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophet sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, See that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the the book of this prophecy... God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Well, in some sense, this has been a long time in coming, and in another sense, it is hard to believe we are at the final sermon of this great book of Revelation of these past two years. The Lord has blessed us in many ways in these things, and we understand that it, that is the intention. It is to bless his church. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ, but the specific things in this great book are in order for the good of his church. In some cases, yes, that his church might be warned and admonished, but in all cases, that there might these great promises that Christ make might be made very clear. Well, this morning we are 
in the final two verses of the book, the final two verses of the Bible. And these two verses have to do with an event that is so important, that looms so large, that we must arrange all of our thinking and our decisions, our lives around that great event. And you know what event that is, the second coming of Christ. We sometimes look back at the uh, apostolic church and the vitality and the blessing that that church had, and we sort of want to have something like that. And in some sense, you'd say, well, we, we can't look back. The Lord has given us this time and this place to serve him, and, and he hasn't given us some other time and place. But in another sense, it's right. We, we look back and we see as the Lord began with this great outpouring of his word and spirit, and we see the the great vitality and spiritual edge, as it were, that the apostolic church had. And, well, I might just ask, what were the things that distinguished it? What were the marks of that apostolic church? And I would suspect if we were to do a comparison of the things that were highest on their minds, the things that were uh, preached, the things that were discussed the most, and we were to line these things up in the ordinary conversation of the people among themselves, and we'd line those things up, the top five list perhaps, and put that next to the contemporary church in today's England, I think there would be a few differences. I pray that there'd be some similarities, but I think there'd be a couple differences. And one of them, foremost, most importantly, the one that I don't have any question in my mind that would be different, would be this expectation, this ongoing expectation of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Because that would have been very, very high. Number one, number two on that list. And it wouldn't appear in our list at all, sadly. You know, back then, this ongoing expectation of the imminent return was something so pervasive that Paul had to reassure them. It was causing, because it was, it was, it was uh, in fact, just a little bit twisted into something that wasn't so good. In Second Thessalonians 2.1, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. And I think that the church today would be fairly immune to such a problem, not because we're so well taught that we understand that when Christ comes, there will be no mistake. Life as we know it will not carry on. There's no way that that, that Christ could have come and that we don't know about it. Not because we're so well taught and so firm in that understanding, but because we're not really expecting him to come anytime soon. And there's no way we could ever be shaken or troubled in mind in such a thing. You know, if I have an expectation of some great event that I'm looking forward to and I've been planning and waiting for that day, there comes with it a certain anxiety about missing it. Even if it's, whether it's a rational or irrational thing, there is the possibility, the feeling that I don't want to miss it. That expectation is there. But sadly, I don't think that expectation is with the contemporary church. Now, there are many reasons for this, probably because we think we have things so great in this life. We're not being persecuted, at least not violently. And we have just about every material comfort that could be had. I know we don't think that we're rich, but we are. In the grand scheme of things, if you were to compare us to every Christian that's ever lived, every one of God's people, and they were to do the evaluation on us, they'd say, you are all rich. There's no doubt about it. And maybe between those, those things and other things like it, We just don't live with an expectation of the next world as we ought to. 
But I would just ask the question, what difference would it make to you if you really did have this ongoing, imminent, this expectation of the imminent return of Christ? Would it make a difference? I think the answer is yes. I think if you are convinced that Christ's return really were imminent, going to happen at any moment, something that would probably, at least in your own mind, happen within your lifetime, quite possibly within this next year, I think it would change your priorities. I think you would have to change your priorities with such an event. I think it would change your decision-making process. I'm, I'm not saying that we ought to do again what, what Paul had to warn his, his people again, uh, something else. Don't quit work. That's what they were doing. They're just uh, sitting around doing nothing, waiting. That's not what the Lord said. The Lord said, occupy till I come. That's not what he's saying. But it would feature in your decision-making process. You would say, you would think to yourself, okay, now if I live to 90, this thing that I have, this idea, what is the, what is the outcome? How is this going to look in eternity? And then you say, ah, but if Christ returns next week, how does that decision look? And both of those things would have to factor into everything that you did. The imminent return of Christ would change your, your priorities. It would change your decision-making process. And I'll speak a little bit more maybe in the application of this. But I would say, most importantly, your anticipation of Christ, your sense of, of waiting for him, your sense, your expression. And this is one of those uh, chicken or the egg sort of things. Is it that... Your anticipation of Christ's return comes from love, your great love for him? Or is it that your love is heightened because you have this continual anticipation? Well, so of course, it's both of those things. And I can be quite sure that, that a church that lives in that kind of expectation is also living in the love of Jesus Christ. We love him and we want to see him. We're looking forward to that day. And our sense of anticipation only heightens that love that we have for him. Now, again, we could go on with these implications, but let's, let's move on to the passage. I'd say one other thing. We know that everything's going to be great when he does return. That's the emphasis, that's the focus, but what, is, what do we do until then? What resource do we have to carry on into that moment? Well, that's the answer we have in the very final verse of the whole Bible. We have the grace of God to enable us to make it. We don't know if it's tomorrow, but it might be yet a long time. And if we're going to make it to the end, it's going to be because the grace of God has given us the day-by-day resources to make it into that great day. Well, the title of this sermon is Come, Lord Jesus. And we'll speak of these three points. First, that Christ declares he is coming quickly. Second, the church prays. Come, Lord Jesus. And third, until then, we have grace. So first, Christ declares that he is coming quickly. As it says in verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. And that is a declaration that we have throughout Revelation. In fact, if you were to to go through the New Testament, you might just find that the second coming of Christ is throughout but it comes with increasing frequency. We find it in the Gospels, but not all that frequently. We find it in the epistles. In fact, the latter part epistles have it more than the former part. And as we go on in, and particularly in the latter part of the New Testament, it's more frequent. And by the time then we get to Revelation, 
it is all present. It, it is something that just occurs over and over and over again, well over a dozen times, probably 18 by my count. And these statements come in, various, in several categories, each one of which is important for us to catch. A, it's a statement about who Christ is, who God is in Christ, that he is the coming one. That's the way that Christ speaks of himself in Revelation 1.8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Okay, speaking of his eternality, speaking of his, the fact that he doesn't rely on anything else to give him his being. He is himself God, doesn't rely on anything else. Who is and who was and who is to, and is to come. Now, it's one way to think of it as, as what we previously preached on it, this eternal one. But there's another aspect to it. The one who is to come. Another way to translate is the coming one. I am the one who is coming. When you think of God, when you think of Jesus Christ, you must think of the one who is coming. If you're relating to a Christ who in your mind is not coming, it's not the real thing. That's not the way he identifies himself. That is part of who he is. When he gives us his name, he reminds you, don't forget, I'm the coming one. That's the one that if you come to Christ and put your faith in him, that's the sort of faith that you have. That's the kind of Christ and Savior you have, a coming Savior. That's the way the angels in heaven, the seraphim, think of God and Christ. For Revelation 4.8, And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. That much we had in Isaiah, in the heavenly throne room. The words that are added are, Who was and is and is to come. He is the coming one. It's the way the 24 elders think of him in Revelation eleven seventeen, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come. And it's the way that John thinks of him as he very opens his letter in verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 4, grace to you and peace from God, or from him who is and who was and who is to come. He is the coming one. And every time... And they're summarizing their worship. They're summarizing their thought. And only just one sentence. Who is this God that you believe in? Who is this Christ that you believe in? He is the coming one. That's the final word every time. The coming one. We're not permitted to forget about that. B, it's a general warning to the world. And we know that part of Revelation is addressed to those who are outside. Most of it is addressed to God's own people, but some of it is addressed to the, those who are outside as a warning. And way back in Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. For them it is no happy event. For those who are outside of Christ, this will not be a good time. This is not something that they're expecting. They're not hoping that it's going to happen. They're going to be sad. They're going to mourn with it, and this is happening. Because he's coming as a judge. But nonetheless, the Lord would have us. When we proclaim Christ, we tell them he's a coming one. Don't forget. You really ought to repent. You really ought to put your faith in this Savior. So that you look forward to this event and not living in dread of it. Because believe me, he is the coming one. God would have us to proclaim that. And see, it's as a a warning to the compromising people. Now, there's this general warning to the world that without a doubt, those who are outside of Christ will mourn when he comes. But there's a kind of conditional warning given to his people. It's one of the great features of the the letters to the seven churches. You remember in Revelation 2.5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly. 
and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. It's conditional. And Revelation 2.16, repent or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the word of my mouth. Revelation 3.3, repent. If you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I come upon you. And that's really important because you have to ask, what is he saying? Is he saying he has a timeline for his return in his own mind and if a church is not doing what it ought to do, if it's compromising with the world in various ways, he's going to speed up that timeline and suddenly come to them? Or does he mean that, that he's going to send out a message to the rest of the church? He's going to, going to send them some kind of electronic message. I'm coming tomorrow, 5 o'clock, be there. But he's leaving out the compromisers from that list and they don't know? Or is he saying, is he saying that in their very lack of anticipation... In their carrying on their life as if he were not coming back, they won't be ready. They're not expecting him to come, and therefore he will come upon them as a thief in the night. He hasn't changed the timeline. He hasn't left them off the distribution list. It's rather that precisely in the way that they're living, their love is cold, their life is careless, they're unconcerned, they're not living in any imminent expectation, that's exactly what's going to happen. The day's going to come, and they won't be ready. I think that's what he's saying here. If you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And likewise in Revelation sixteen fifteen, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest you walk naked and they see his shame. You see, I think he is equating faithful, loving churches with those who live in continual expectation of him and need no warning. If they are living... They haven't left their first love. They have great and warm love for him. If their priorities are right, if they're not compromising, he doesn't need to warn them that I'm coming as a thief and you just might be caught out. No. He's saying that these compromising churches won't be living in the expectation and therefore will be left completely unprepared. So it's a conditional warning to those who are in compromise. Indeed, it is a promise to the church. And this is the strongest of all these things. If there is a great warning to the compromising, if even more so, there is an unconditional promise to God's people. And that goes back, of course, to the words in John 14. Now, this is not the first time that the Apostle John has, has pinned something about the return of Christ. The words of our Savior in John 14:2, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. What a beautiful promise Christ has given to his people. I am going away, yes. What I'm going to be doing there is preparing a place for you. And if I go, you better believe that I'm coming back. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to complete the job. See, Christ did this great work on the cross, but that work of redemption is not fully complete because we're still here. We haven't been gathered into the new heavens and the new earth. We haven't been saved from all of our enemies. We haven't been saved from the sin within us utterly and completely. He's saying, I will come again and I'll bring you so that, you see, the basis of this is the love that Christ has for a sheep. He's not going to leave us behind. It's born of his unwillingness to be permanently apart from his people. He loves us. 
And I would say, by the way, as we've seen throughout so much of, of this book, there is an anticipation on Christ's part for this great day. He's not indifferent to it. Yes, he is patient. But in some sense, he is living in anticipation of that great, great day when he comes to his people again and brings to completion and therefore has the joy that was set before him in the cross of the great joy of seeing his redeemed people in all their beauty and perfection. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Does he not look forward to his own wedding day? I think he does. And I think his priorities are very much dictated by the expectation of that event. Day and night interceding on our behalf. Day and night building his church and bringing things to completion. Waiting for, and in that sense hastening, the day that he has appointed. It's a promise born of his love for us. It's, by the way, I should say also, it's the last words that were heard on the day that he left. In Acts chapter 10, you have to remember what were the last things those apostles heard. In, or Sorry, Acts chapter 1, verse 10. And while they stood, they looked steadfastly. Jesus has just left him. He has ascended up into heaven. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, they're still looking. As he went up, behold, two men, angels, stood by them in white apparel, who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Those were the last words on the day of Christ's ascension. It was a promise that Christ will return. That was what they were left with. The same Christ, he will return. And so it has been in Revelation 22. I mentioned the increased frequency throughout Scripture of seeing these things. And now, here in the last chapter, there's only 22 verses, 21 verses, sorry, and there are three times, three of these promises in just the 21 verses. Verse 7, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. And verse 20, He who testifies to these things said, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. What's striking about these things is not only its frequency and just how thoroughly this last chapter, the whole word of God is focused on the second coming, but that word quickly. He is coming. And I think a lot, many of us could easily say, and a, a test, a true-false answer, an exam, is Christ coming again? True or false? True. But it's not just that he's coming. The element that is being preached, the element that is being taught to us, the element that we must believe is that he is coming quickly. And that's the crucial thing. If you are just theoretically coming at some point, if he says, I'm coming, but I'm taking my time. I'm coming, but don't worry about it. You see, he doesn't do that. You know, if you wanted to take the edge off of the, the perennial and ongoing expectation that he could come at any moment, he could have done that in this last chapter. He could have said, behold, I'm coming in a long, long time. So please, you people who are reading this now, don't worry about it. Because I know good and well it's not going to happen for 2,000 years. If he wanted to say, behold, I'm coming. But you've got a lot of other things to worry about. So put that somewhere down on the, the list. He could have done that. He could have taken the edge off of that expectation, but he didn't. He heightened it. 
There's virtually nothing more that he could have done to heighten that expectation. It was his intention. And those who believe his word take him at his word. He is coming quickly. And we must believe that. That was our first point. The fact that he is coming quickly. That is the declaration to us. He declares, as he declares himself, as his own name, he is the coming one. And he's coming quickly. Secondly, there's a response The response is for us to say, even so, come Lord Jesus. That's what we have in verse 20. We say, Amen. We say it is true. We believe it is true. And we proclaim it as truth. And then we say, even so. By the way, that that translates something that could easily be said, uh, truly or yes. So it's not just amen, but also truly and yes. Come Lord Jesus. That was John's response to this promise. When he's given that response as he's there in the spirit in heaven, receiving these words from Christ himself. I'm coming quickly, John. He says, yes, I'm into that, Lord. Come quickly. He's expressing his own heart's desire, isn't he? His own heart desire that it be true. There could not have been any more words in all of Revelation that he would have loved to have heard this man who suffered for so very long. He's an old man, seen many persecutions, seen many heresies. You see that striving in First John, seen many sins of God's people, seen his own sin. And you can imagine how his heart leapt at hearing those words, I'm coming quickly. He says, yes, come quickly. That's his heart, expression of what he wants. And it's his prayer. You see, sometimes we imagine that prayer is something, sadly, maybe because prayer is sometimes done badly, but we imagine it to be something external to, to just the desires of our hearts. But that's, that's what it is. You see, when we, we come to God in prayer, we pour out these things that we'd love to see happen. And so he was responding not only in just saying, yes, that's, that's me too, Lord. You better believe I want you to come. But it's his prayer. Lord, please do that. I'm asking you that you would do exactly what you're promising to do. That's his response, and that must be the church's response as well. John, as always, is speaking on behalf of the church as our representative, as he interacts with Christ on our behalf. And his words express our words if we are God's people. We really want him to come back too. Because we don't think that this world is so great. I hope not. If we love the world, that's proof positive that we're not a Christian. If we love him, that's a very good indication that we're his. We very much want that to happen. It's our, it's our heart as well. And what we ought to do, of course, is furthermore to pray that that would be the case. In our prayers, yes, we pray that God would build up his church. Of course we do. But we pray one day he'd complete it. We pray that soon enough he would come and take us back to where he is. I'd also want to say just something that I've mentioned in the introduction and say just a little bit more about the connection between our love and our expectation. It's something that's expressed almost to the end of 
of the book of, well, actually just there at the end of, of 1 Corinthians. It's 1 Corinthians 16, beginning at the end of verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Then he says, O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So he's contrasting these situations. He's saying, if there are anyone out there who doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, his situation will be very dire when the end comes. It's the same warning that that is given in Revelation. He is coming, and if he's coming as your judge, you're in big trouble. You ought to repent. But then he cannot think about that even once. He cannot think about that without immediately saying, Oh, come, Lord. Lord, come. It's a very thought of someone not loving Christ and not loving his appearance makes him think of the love of his life, the great desire that he has for Christ to return. And he has to say, Oh, Lord, come. That's our prayer, too. In fact, what Peter says, and as I've mentioned, I don't say it as as a dogmatically established fact. I'm sure there's exceptions, but I'm giving you a general observation that the the, the mentions of the second coming of Christ occur with increasing frequency as you go throughout the New Testament, and one of those would certainly be in 2 Peter. And what he says in 2 Peter 3.11 is, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? In the light also of our love, as we've said, in the light of the reality of what we already know about this world, what do, we know, what do you know, Christian, about Christ? He's the coming one. What do you know, Christian, about this world? It's going to be dissolved. It's going to be destroyed. There's going to be nothing left of it. Okay, we'll do the math. Figure it out. If that's the case, then, what manner of persons ought you to be? In holy conduct, in godliness. And so that's the way we ought to live. While we're on this earth, we ought to be holy conduct and godliness. Not seeking after the things of this world. They're all going to burn. In holiness and godliness because we know that Christ is coming and he's coming quickly. But more than that, more than just doing what is rational, more than what is doing what is, what is right in the sight of God, in light of these twin facts of our reality, that we are looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. And I wonder if, if anyone has ever looked into heaven, the physical heavens, to the clouds and thought to himself, I wonder if this is it. I wonder if this is the last day. Looking and hastening because we want it to come quickly and we pray that it comes quickly. What does it say about us if it makes no difference whatsoever if he comes in 10 years or a 1,000 years? What does it say about us? Even worse, if our secret heart desires that he delays coming a little while longer because we've got things we want to do on this earth. I don't at all want to diminish his goodness and the way that he blesses his people, particularly in family, as we are looking forward to these weddings this, this coming summer. The birth of children. These are wonderful events. The things that we'd like to do in the church and so forth, wonderful. Don't want to diminish that in the slightest. 
But if that's more important, if that it looms larger, if in comparison to Christ returning that you'd rather have the world, you'd rather have these things now than that, you have a problem. No, we must be looking for and hastening that day. That's our response. Jesus declares, I'm coming. And we respond, come, Lord Jesus. But thirdly, we think of his provision until that point, which is the grace of, of Christ. It says in verse 21, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Sometimes when people criticize spiritual, biblical, real Christianity, in fact, we have a very famous author these days who absolutely denigrating heavenly mindedness says that's the greatest problem with, with church throughout history is all they were they're thinking about was heaven and they need to be working on this earth. They need to be transforming the culture and doing things right now and right here. And they say that you people are a problem because you're, you're thinking about Christ's return and about heaven. Well, one of the things that they'd be right about, theoretically, is if there was no provision for us to live fruitful lives on this earth, to glorify God, and to carry on until that point, and all we had was a sort of empty promise, a promise that artificially sustains us, and we have to day by day sort of, Lord, you're coming. Okay, I can make it another day, and, and that sort of thing. And there's nothing more to sustain us, and they might be right. But they're missing out one really important thing out of that equation, and that is the grace of God. You see, by the grace of God, we can carry on. By the grace of God, we can have patience. We can live in that continual tension of an expectation of wanting something greater and yet living productive, fruitful lives here. We have the grace of God to be patient and expectant. We have the grace of God to build up His church and seek first the kingdom of God on this, in this world as also we look for and hasten that day. Now, I understand that these things would be utterly impossible if we didn't have the grace of God. There's lots of things that are utterly impossible without the grace of God. But this is the great gift that we have. And I need not say just how important grace is. Now, I just mentioned something in Revelation just to kind of complete this, this little trajectory that we have in Revelation. And that Jesus doesn't always say for, for people to move on to something greater. Sometimes he says to his people, just hold on to what you already have. In Revelation 2.25, hold fast to what you have until I come. Or Revelation 3.11, behold, I'm coming quickly. What should we do? What should we do about that? Hold fast to what you have, that no one would take your crown. Hold fast. Don't fall away. Hang on to the gospel, to the means of grace, to the things that I've given you. And the question is, what is it that we have? What is it that we're holding fast to? What is it the thing that links us to Christ in the first place? There's only one thing. It's grace. Certainly not works. It's certainly not merit. It's not hold fast to the hard work that has gotten you into a place where you can expect to go to heaven because you've achieved it. And if you just keep on and hold on to works, then you'll make it. But no, it's hold fast to that which brought you here in the first place, that which is going to keep you, and that which will carry on in eternity, by the way. The grace of Christ. The grace of God. It's not something to be earned, but a free gift. And that's what we must hang on to. 
Because if we ever change our mind about that and, and believe that it's because we're so wonderful that we're accepted in God, then we have fallen from grace. Now, we must hold fast to that which we have, and that is grace. You know, Revelation, this book begins and it ends with reference to grace. In verse 4, the beginning of the, the whole book, verse, chapter 1, verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you. That's the first thing mentioned. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and, is, is, and who is to come. These seven spirits are before his throne. In that very same verse. First thing that's mentioned, grace to you. Grace from this one who is coming. First Peter 5.10 But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. He's called us to eternal glory, but we may have to suffer for a while. There may be every reason to have to lean on grace even more than we're doing now. You know how it was with, with Paul himself. When he's given this thorn in the flesh, and we are perpetually wondering how this, this makes sense, that, that Paul, who is so faithful, who continually hazarded his life for the sake of the gospel, being a faithful witness in every way, working so diligently, and yet, you know that story in Second Corinthians 12, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. By the, and as we were reminded, John had revelations, so did, so did Paul. Those ones aren't all written down. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And you see some of these things connected up. There couldn't have been anyone who was more certain about the second coming of Christ than Paul. But the reality of life here is sometimes hard. And it is the will of God that it is that way. You might even say that he desires our our joy in heaven to be all the more heightened because we have something to look forward to. To make the contrast all the greater, he sometimes makes us to endure trials and suffering in this life. And what he says with regard to Paul in his case, that lest he be puffed up in these revelations, which we very clear were revelations of heaven, that he yet be given a thorn in the flesh while he was yet on earth. But the great sustenance, the great uh, Giving the gift that was going to enable him to carry on in this way was the grace of God. My grace is sufficient for you. And that just precisely in the fact that there is a delay, there is a difference in time between now when we come to Christ and we believe in him and when he actually returns for us, that is the theater for God's grace. That we're going to see and everyone around us and the whole world is going to see that God's grace is sufficient to keep his people until that final day. This is the way we begin. This is the way we end. There's nothing more. It is God's grace that enables us to carry on. Now, we've applied some of these things already, but we have to take 
sort of in order, the situation of what this return, this imminent return of Christ, what its use was in the, the book of Revelation. It is, first of all, a warning to those outside of Christ. He says, look, Christ is coming. He's coming soon. And if you remain as you are in rebellion against your creator, he's coming as a judge and you will mourn. It won't be any occasion of great joy for you. It'll be an occasion of terrible sadness and fear and darkness. You'll join with those kings of the earth who are calling out to the mountains to fall on them, to hide us from the face of the Lamb who is coming in judgment. And the word for you is to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given you this warning. He's reminding you, I am coming quickly in order that you might know that you don't have forever to dally in this world. The world is a city of destruction, a city set for destruction. And you need to escape. The fire alarm has been pulled. The alarm is buzzing. The lights are going on and the smoke is in the air. And you need to get out. The way that you get out is faith in Christ. Jesus says, I'm coming. You must believe that and act on it. Jesus says, if you believe on me, I who laid down my life on the cross in order that you might live, you who are a sinner and have nothing that can merit salvation, but I who am perfect, who lived perfectly and died an atoning sacrifice, you believe on me and you'll live forever. That's the wonderful promise. It's so simple, I know. But sometimes the most important things are the most simple. And here is the gospel for you who are outside that you might believe. Now, if the warning comes and goes, if Revelation, the whole book of Revelation comes and goes and it makes no difference to you, then it has not had its right effect. And no doubt you will regret one day not listening to these warnings. But on the other hand, how we pray that you would take up Christ's gracious offer, in fact, his gracious warning and his gracious promise that he is coming quickly. He's not hiding that from you. He's not saying, I am coming, but please make sure you enjoy this world just a a couple more decades. I know you've got some plans. You go ahead and do that. I'm coming after that. No, he doesn't give that sort of promise. He says, I'm coming quickly. And if you know what's good for you, if you know what's right for your soul, I'm giving you fair warning in order that you might put your faith in me because my desire is that you repent and believe and that you'd find me to be your savior rather than your judge. And then it is a warning. It must be a warning for the compromisers. And here we speak probably in various ways to all of I certainly speak to myself. Please do not think when I speak of others who are compromising that I do not also think of myself. Who among us has not made various deals, as it were, with the world? Who among us has been utterly single-minded in our obedience to God's word, our obedience to his law, and our complete and unmitigated love for Christ? Who among us hasn't in some way given over to idols of this world, in which we say, we start out by saying, okay, all of our love to to Christ and none to this world, 
But you say, oh, but this, this particular idol is very attractive. I might, well, Lord, maybe I'll give you 90% of my love and 90% of my expectations are you and 10% is on this idol or that idol. And maybe over time that ratio gets worse. Now is the time for you to repent. Now is the time for us to turn away from these things. Christ says he is coming quickly. Would that idol look so attractive if you knew he was coming this time tomorrow? I hope not. I hope you'd throw it in the fire, wouldn't you? Metaphorically or actually, I don't know. Well, that's the word for us. As far as we're concerned, he might come, even tonight. And therefore, we ought to repent from all of our compromising with worldly things, worldly teachings. And so in the seven letter, the letters to the seven churches included also an attraction to false doctrine in various ways. And I mentioned, I mentioned how this imminent return must be factored into our, our decision-making process, and I just want to sort of reiterate that, that we have to think, again, not just, you know, we have uh, in the, the Marine Corps, we had these um, decision-making matrix, and I think most organizations have it, and things that you're supposed to take into account and you can guess that the second return of Christ was not in that document that told you how to make decisions. And it's not in the world's documents. And if you follow what's going around, the, 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 the world around you, it'll never factor into your decisions. The adverts who say the attractive things about their products and their situation, they're not also, by the way, it may not be a good idea if the Lord were to return next week. And likewise for us. We need to have one eye towards the fact that we must do business. We must occupy until Christ returns. And our plans must reflect a lifelong, fruitful obedience to Christ and the expectation of one generation after another receiving God's covenant and his kingdom being built up and our holiness increasing and being a blessing to others in various ways according to our vocations, according to our gifts that we've been given. With the other eye with a slightly stronger eye, with the eye that sees a little bit further, we're looking at the imminent return of Christ that could happen at any moment. You know, it's like what, it, what Paul says in another letter. You know, you people are always talking about um, your plans, and I'm going to go here or there, and we're going, to, we're going to make money doing this or that or the other. And what you should say is if the Lord wills and we live and we carry on in this life that long, maybe we'll do those things. And that somewhere prominently in all of our decision-making is if the Lord tarries. If the Lord tarries, then we'll do that. If the Lord tarries, we're going to try out this other building. If the Lord tarries, the Hexham Bible study will start. Because we don't know for certain that we're even going to make it that far. And when we have that sort of mindset then, we evaluate it in the light. Well, you know... Because sometimes there will be decisions, there will be trajectories, there will be courses of action that won't look so good if that were the case. And finally, we have to end with just the application of joy. God would have us to be joyful. And I can tell you, I don't know how you'd feel. I don't know. But if I knew for absolute certain that before the evening service Christ would return on the clouds of glory, 
That would bring me great joy. Would it bring you great joy? I hope it would bring you great joy. I hope that the joy would be overflowing. And you would live from now until 5.30 or whatever in the greatest experience of joy imaginable and that just being the precursor for that which exceeds it beyond any imagination. Jesus wants us to have that joy, you see. That's why he says, I am coming quickly. Because he wants us to live in that expectation all of our lives. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, the one who is and who was and who is to come, Christ, the coming one, promised to his people, Lord, help us to believe it. Help us to believe and help us to act as if we believe that Christ truly is coming and he is coming quickly. For all those who have not put their faith in Christ, let them understand this great message that Christ is coming one way or another and that the most important thing they can possibly do is to repent and to put their faith in this coming one. That they might meet him as savior rather than as judge as they put their, their faith in this one who laid down his life and has been so patiently giving opportunities in order that they might repent, in order that they might be saved, and that none might be lost. We pray, Lord, that they would put their faith in Christ. We're so thankful, Lord, that all of Christ's sheep will be saved and none will be lost. And how thankful, Lord, we live in this great promise that we ourselves are not going to be left behind that if Christ has left us for a time, we know that he will come again to receive us to himself. That he himself anticipates with joy the wedding feast, his wedding feast of the Lamb. And Lord, then what sense does it make when we turn aside to other things, when we dabble with the things of this world, when we turn to idols in various ways, And our love to Christ goes cold. Lord, we thank you for the gift of this book of Revelation. We thank you for the gift to your people that we might know truly that Christ is coming quickly. Help us, Lord, Lord, to live in a way that makes sense of these things. Help us, Lord, as we hear these things in our own hearts to say, Yes, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And to live in wholehearted obedience, and in love, that we might experience that great joy, both in our ongoing anticipation, and yes, when that day finally comes, that we do see him coming on the clouds of joy, glory. May our joy not be like those who have suddenly seen a thief coming in the night and weren't ready, but rather those who watch and pray And the moment that they have been waiting for all their lives will finally come. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.